Oh, I hope you wrote a Bible this morning. You're going to need it. Um, Turn with me to the 13th chapter of the book of Nehemiah, and I'll read from it in just a moment. Um, Let me tell you this one quick thing. You know, we, we take off the Wednesday nights in December because people's lives are maddening. Uh, did you survive it? Did you? I, I applaud you. Um, but we resume on the 6th of January, uh, Wednesday night the 6th. And uh, normally I would jump right back into the book of Galatians, <clears throat> and we will get to it, Lord willing, the, the second week. But the first week, I want to address something else, and I want to tell you about it, and I I hope you'll be with me, us. Um, It has to do with Islam. Uh, The Pope has made the statement that um, Christians and Muslims worship the same God. Uh, I would like to refute that, and um, I'd like for you to be with me, uh, with us, uh, as we discuss what apparently is a burning issue. I'm not going to talk about immigration or refugees. Uh, you can muck that up yourself <laughs> like, like the rest of us have. But, um, but this is different. This is different. And, and um, I hope you'll be with us. As I'm gonna, I, don't, I don't have a title for it. I just, I just had it up to here. And finally said, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak to it. So Wednesday night the 6th. Come be with us, and um, let's uh, take a look at that claim. Now, guys, I've got a long text for you. Um, I'm going to start at verse 4, and I'm going to read to the end of the chapter. So I hope you'll stay with me. It is lengthy, but it is all one <clears throat> unit. And I, I tried to break it up as best I can or could and, and, and didn't succeed very well. So I'm starting with verse 4, and I'm going to read to the end of the chapter. Uh, This uh, is the inerrant, the infallible um, word of the living God, and it reads like this. Now before this, Elisha the priest, having authority over the storerooms of the house of our God, was allied with Tobiah, and he had prepared for him a large room where previously they had stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, the tithes of grain, the new wine and oil, which were commanded to be given to the Levites and singers and gatekeepers and the offerings for the priests. But during all this, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Then after certain days, I obtained leave from the king, and I came to Jerusalem and discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah in preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. And it grieved me bitterly, therefore I threw all the household goods of Tobiah out of the room. Then I commanded them to cleanse the rooms, and I brought back into them the articles of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. I also realized that the portions for, our Le- for the Levites had not been given uh, them for each of the Levites and the singers who did the work had gone back to, the, to his field. So I contended with the rulers and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their place. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain and the new wine and the oil to the storehouse. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouse, Shelemiah the priest, and Zadok, the, the scribe, and of the Levites, Pedadiah, and next to them was Hanan, the son of Zakur, and the son of Mataniah, for they were considered faithful, and their task was to distribute to their brethren. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God uh, and for its services. In those days I saw in Judah some people treading wine presses on the Sabbath. 
and bringing in sheaves and loading donkeys with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of burdens which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them about the day on which they were selling provisions. Men of Tyre dwelt there also, who brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, What evil thing is this that you do by which you profane the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do thus, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on the city? Yet you bring added wrath on the Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So it was as the gates of Jerusalem, as it began to be dark before the Sabbath, that I commanded the gates to be shut and charged that they must not be opened until after the Sabbath. Then I posted some of my servants at the gates so that no burdens would be brought in on the Sabbath day. Now the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. Then I warned them, and I said to them, Why do you spend the night around the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they came no more on the Sabbath, and I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and that they should go and guard the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. Remember me, O my God, concerning this also. And spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. In those days I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one or the other people. So I contended with them and cursed them, struck uh, some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations there was no king like him who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women caused even him to sin. Should we then fear here then should we then hear of your doing all this great evil, transgressing against our God by marrying pagan women? And one of the sons of Joyada the son of Elisha, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite, therefore I drove him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them of every, everything pagan. I also assigned duties to the priest and the Levites, each to his service, and to bring the wood offering and the first fruits at appointed times. Remember me, O my God, for good. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, this word, this endures forever. Um, guys, we, uh, we come to the end of a year and we come to the end of a book. Uh, we finish pretty much um, 2015 and now we finish the book of Nehemiah. And the next time I see you, uh, we will be in a new year and a new book. But before um, I uh, take you to the text of this last chapter of Nehemiah, I need to address um, what I think is an elephant in the room um, that, I, that I think you all see. At least you see it um, if you were listening to me as I read this lengthy passage. The, the elephant in the room, of course, is this behavior on the part of Nehemiah, um, acting as some kind of madman. How, how do we explain that kind of behavior? Um, because it appears to be uh, so, um, so sub-Christian. Um, first of all, let me say I do not agree that it is sub-Christian, and I am going to try to convince you otherwise I probably will fail. 
And, but I'm going to do it very briefly I'm, um, because I've already addressed this same issue in chapter 5. I know you don't remember chapter 5. I, um, I, I understand that. But the whole issue came up in chapter 5, and I, uh, I addressed it then. And I said some of these, I mean, there's one thing that I didn't say, but let me, here's some of the things I said back then. I reminded you of Moses, Moses who went on the top of the mountain and got the Ten Commandments from God, and then he, came, he comes down with Joshua. He sees the, the nation of Israel in a big old party. He throws down the, um, uh, the, the tablets, and they, they are busted up into thousands of pieces. But he didn't stop there. Um, he told the Levites to get their swords and to go uh, slay the offenders. And so 3,000 people uh, died on that day. <clears throat> And Moses was never rebuked for what he did then. I, I alluded to uh, Numbers 25, where Phineas, Phineas uh, sees a Jewish man going into his tent, carry, or, um, with, hand in hand with a, a foreign woman. And so he goes in the tent too with a spear and spears the boat to death. Uh, he, was never, he was never rebuked for that. And uh, he was even commended. I even told you about um, a, a statement in Ephesians 4 that commands us to be angry, but not sin. Ephesians 4.23 uh, says, be angry, but do not sin. And I, and I also mentioned that, um, that Jesus is described as being angry <coughs> Pardon me in um, Mark chapter 3, verse 5. But here's the thing that I didn't say back then, and I, and I want you to see it if you've got a, a Bible close to you. Um, you know that Jesus cleansed the temple in his ministry, don't you? Well, did you know that he did it twice? He did it once at the beginning of his ministry, and he did it again uh, in the last couple of days of his life. In that first one that is recorded for us in John chapter 2, um, I wanted to show you this. I don't know that you've ever noticed this. Uh, maybe you have. This is John chapter 2, verse 15, and, and it says... When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple. Did you notice that? When he had made a whip of cords, he made it. Jesus stepped aside, took the time out, and very deliberately, uh, with um, <clears throat> forethought, made a, cord, made a whip. And then he uses it to drive those people out of the temple. Now, guys, um, just in case there be somebody deranged among us this morning, I am by no means trying to encourage or advocate that you go out and kill somebody in the name of Jesus. Um, I, I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that there are times when it is wicked not to be angry. When, when zeal... And sin collide. Anger is the result. When sin and zeal collide, anger is the result. Now guys, I, I, I fully acknowledge that you can be angry at all the wrong things, at all the wrong times, in all the wrong ways. I, I, I understand that. I, I, I get that. But when nothing angers you, then I'm afraid that you might be dead on the inside. At least dead to any kind of principled living. Living that is dictated and determined by principle. <clears throat> if nothing angers you, ladies and gentlemen, then 
then principle living is no longer true of you in any way. Guys, let me state it positively and then we're going to move on. When flagrant sin jeopardizes the spiritual well-being of God's people, anger is a must. When flagrant sin jeopardizes the well-being of God's people, anger is a must. Now, um, I did want to address that. Uh, it's in the text, and I, I thought I should at least address it. But now let's, let's get to the text itself, the story that unfolds in chapter 13. Guys, hopefully you haven't forgotten uh, what I said a couple of weeks ago, but just in case you did, <laughs> let, me, let me give you a quick review. This is how this book unfolds, the book of Nehemiah. This is how it unfolds. Um, chapter 9 is a story about a four-page story about a very public repentance that takes place in Israel. There's four pages of this expression of sin on the part of Israel, okay? That's chapter 9. The last verse of chapter 9, the people doing the repenting realize, wait a minute, we need to do something public. We need some public accountability over our sin, and so we're going to take a, we're going to, we're going to, write an oath. We're going to write a document and take some public vows and we're going to sign this document and, uh, and read it in front of all the people. Chapter 10 opens by giving you a list of 84 names of people who signed that document. Remember? And then the text tells us that there are three areas of emphasis of that document. Three areas. Now listen. Area number one was illegitimate marriage. Area number two was the profaning of the Sabbath. Area number three was the proper upkeep and care of the house of God. You remember? I, I, I told you back then two weeks ago that that, that, that phrase, the house of God is mentioned nine times. Those were three areas of concern that were written into the document, signed by all of these people, and read publicly in chapter 10. Now, um, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 13 of Nehemiah belong... To that event. Now, guys, look. Between verse 3 and verse 4, there's a 12-year period. <laughs> Verses 1 through 3 are attached to that event that really starts in chapter 9. <clears throat> but in verse 4, I mean, there's this 12-year gap. And in verse 4, we are told that shortly after that, that big revival in Israel, shortly after that, Nehemiah returns um, to Babylon, reassuming his uh, responsibilities as the cupbearer to the king. Uh, how long was he there? Well, if you put some little facts together, and most have suggested that he was there for 12 years, 
At least that's what I'm going with. But there's this 12-year gap between verse 3 and verse 4. And in those 12 years, Nehemiah is back in Babylon serving the king of Babylon, or the king of Persia, Artaxerxes. But this much we know for sure. We're told in verse 6 that Artaxerxes permitted him, permitted Nehemiah, to return to Jerusalem and to resume his leadership of the nation of Israel. Still with me? You need to go over that again. (laughs) In that 12-year period while Nehemiah was away, everything had collapsed. All of the oaths, all of the commitments, all of that spiritual fervor, it was gone. And in its place, you'll notice in verse 7, Nehemiah finds evil. That's what he calls it, evil. He comes back from Babylon after 12 years being away. You know, you've heard that saying, when the cat's away, the mice will play. Well, when this cat was away for 12 years, all of that revival had long since been forgotten. And notice, ladies and gentlemen, notice in your text that at the center of the evil was Eliashib. Who's he? Who's Eliashib? Oh, he's just the high priest. He's the top dog. He is the head of the religious establishment. He is numero uno. He would be to Israel what the Pope is to Roman Catholicism. He's the top dog. And the center of the evil, uh, it, it swirls around. Number one guy, Elisha. And what did he do? Here's what he did. He allowed Tobiah. You remember that name? Sanballat and Tobiah. You met him first in chapter 2, verse 19. Uh, He was the one, along with his sidekick, Sanballat, that opposed this project from the very opening gun. They were the ones that wanted to kill Nehemiah. They're the ones that cooked up all these schemes about, how did that meet us in the plains of Ono? Remember all that? After 12 years of being away, Eliashib, the high priest, has allowed Tobiah to move not into Jerusalem but into the temple. Eliashib has rented him a room. Tobiah now is living in one of the former storehouses, a little room off the side of the the temple. And so when Nehemiah comes back, he notices that Tobiah, Tobiah is living not in Jerusalem, not on the outskirts of town. He's living 
in the temple. This avowed enemy of the entire project that we've been reading about in the book of Nehemiah is now allied with the high priest and he's living inside the temple. And that's bad. That's really bad. But let me tell you what's worse. Well, in fact, it'll tell you this in verse 1 of chapter 13. Tobiah is a Gentile. And no Gentiles are supposed to even visit much less live inside the temple. So, um, so what does Nehemiah do about that? Well, he says, now, fellas, we need to, we need to talk about this, you know? We need, to, we need to discuss this problem, and we need, to, we, need to, we need to pray about it. No, ladies and gentlemen, look at verse 8. And it grieved me bitterly, therefore I threw all the household goods of Tobiah out of the room. You know what this looks like? It looks like John 2, when Jesus is turning over money tables and all that business. And, 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 and Nehemiah has taken Tobiah's furniture and thrown it, out, thrown it out into the streets. Can you imagine? I mean, in your mind's eye, this, the ruckus, the mayhem, people yell at each other, and you know. And Nehemiah's throwing his stuff out of the temple. And then look at verse 9. Then, this is almost comical, he cleanses the room. He hoses the place down. Well, of course he did. That was a Gentile in there. Those Gentiles, as you know, are dirty, filthy. I mean, spiritually, physically, and morally. He hoses the room down. Now, guys, just for a second, push the pause button just in my effort to try and help you apply this text to you. Tell me, do you see that kind of zeal for obedience in you any place? Do you? Do you see inside you a zeal for obedience like on display here by Nehemiah. But uh, let's, um, um, let's move on. He's been gone for 12 years, and he finds that Tobiah is living it. But then he also finds that the clergy, uh, this is in verse 10 of chapter, the clergy has not been paid. And so bad had it gotten that the Levites and the singers had returned to farming so that they could eke out a living. Now, wait a minute, Nehemiah. I mean, I mean no. Nehemiah says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Oh, wait, 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 wait just a second, fellas. Well, I, 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 let, me, let me think about this. Didn't you guys take an oath back in chapter 10? Didn't you take an oath vowing that you wouldn't let the house of God suffer? Didn't you stand in front of people and say, we're never going to do that? Hey, and, and fellas, all these guys' names that are in chapter 10, verses 1 through 27, all you guys, how'd you let that happen? 
I mean, didn't you sign your name to that oath? Wasn't that one of the very specifics that was in there? Um, tell me, fellas, where is there any kind of moral backbone among you? But there's more. Verse 15. The Sabbath day is violated in the very ways that you said you would not allow when you signed that document publicly and stated that the Sabbath would be protected, would not be profane. The very thing you said and signed your name to, you're doing. Now, Nehemiah, you you need to be nice. Nice. Guys, This doesn't call for nice. Look at what he does in verse 21. Then I warned them and said to them, why do you spend the night around the wall if you do it again? I'm going to beat you up. With a threat of bodily harm, he deals with these violators of of the law. By the way, guys, um, at this point, Nehemiah is probably around 60 years old. Wow, what a dude. But oh, we're not done yet. Verse 23. what, What is being described there is that Jewish men are willfully marrying women who worship foreign gods. And as a result of those marriages, they are bearing children, look at it, that don't even speak Hebrew. As I recall, didn't you guys sign an oath against this kind of thing in chapter 10, verse 30? Tell me, people, where is the outrage? What is it about this document that you didn't understand? Where is that document? Where is your commitment? Where is that vow that you took? And notice in verse 28, one of the most guilty of them all is the grandson of Eliashib, the high priest. And I want you to notice in your text who he married. He married a daughter of Sanballat. Tobiah and Sanballat, the avowed enemies of the purposes of God, the high priest's grandson married Sanballat's daughter. 
Now, now how are you going to deal with this one, Nehemiah? I mean, what are you, you going to do about this one? Um, well, take a look at, with me at verse 25. So I contended with them and cursed them, struck them, struck some of them, and pulled out their hair. You did what? You cursed them? You struck some of them? You pulled out their hair? You know, guys, um, I know that some of you are very uncomfortable with some of my antics up here. And you know what? I don't blame you. There are things that I have done that I'm embarrassed over, and I wish that I could take them back. And there's not a Sunday that I leave this church that I, I don't get in my car wishing that I could have changed either what I said or how I said it. I know that you are just taken aback at times at some of the things that I do. I don't blame you. You're right, I'm wrong. But ladies and gentlemen, when I hear that our high school students are being taught by their history teacher that Allah and God are the same God, my blood boils. Now, let me summarize what's going on here in this, this scene. You got a Gentile, Tobiah, living in the temple, the avowed enemy, who is also a Gentile, it's not supposed to be, and it's allowed by the high priest. You've got the clergy not being paid, so the house of God is left unattended. You've got the Sabbath ignored. And you've got idolatrous marriages such that the younger generation no longer even even spoke Hebrew. Is anybody angry yet? You should be. Guys, I'm not sure I need to point this out to you. But the very three things that are listed for you in chapter 10 as a part of this document that they signed and took an oath to keep publicly in chapter 10, the very three things, illegitimate marriage, profaning the Sabbath, and the upkeep of the house of God, all three of them, are now broken. And then, just for good measure, they threw in a Tobiah in the temple. This is a train wreck. Now, How do you find the gospel in all that? Well, let me suggest this. 
Guys, the Old Testament era, I, I, try, I told you this when we started studying this book, that the, the Bible is not arranged chronologically. The Old Testament era closes at Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 31. Chronologically, what I have just read you from chapter 13, and that's why I read so much of it, these are the final days of the Old Testament era. And they end on a note of utter failure. God's people cannot keep God's law. God's people cannot keep their oaths. God's people cannot keep their commitments and their promises. The covenant made with Israel at Sinai cannot produce obedience even in the midst of all of our best efforts. They will not work because you see, ladies and gentlemen, the problem is not on the outside of us. The problem is on the inside of us. Ladies and gentlemen, with the closing of the book of Nehemiah, we say goodbye to the Old Testament era and writ large over that whole Old Testament story. Failure. So what are we to do? We stand on the edge of the horizon of the Old Testament and we plead. Is there any hope? Is there, is there something else? Is there something better? The book of Nehemiah and the whole Old Testament ends with a thud. So that you might know that the only hope that any of us have lies outside of us. And then... The New Testament, after 400 years of silence, opens this way. And she will bring forth a son. And you will call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sin. All of our sin, all of our broken promises, all of our unkept commitments, all of our brokenness are punished in Christ Jesus. All of the righteousness that, that we cannot supply, he purchases us, purchases for us. My friends, listen to me. Do you see what a fool you are? Should you think 
that the way that I can get right with God is to change my outsides. You know, I run into this quite a bit theologically. People are, um, are so insistent on having their free will. Well, ladies and gentlemen, um, this is the result. Nehemiah 13 is the result of the exercising of your free will. That thing is lethal, ladies and gentlemen. I don't even want mine. You can, you can have it. What, what I want is someone who, who will overcome my sinful will and give me a new heart. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what the gospel promises you. That you're going to be made new. Listen to me. The place where sin and zeal collided was at the cross of Jesus Christ. My sin. And God's zeal to save me collided. And Jesus Christ bore the brunt of God's wrath for my sin. My friend, what you need is not a New Year's resolution. What we all need is a Savior. It's my privilege to tell you there is one. And there's only one. And his name is Christ Jesus the Lord. Oh God, would you show us through this scene in Nehemiah 13 the enormity of our need that we might not walk out of this room with a foolish notion that we're good enough to stand before you. What we long for is a Savior. Father, if you've led somebody here this morning who has not yet met that Savior, would you open their eyes to see his beauty now? Do that for Jesus' sake.